Welcome to the Worship Generation Radio Ministry with Pastor Joey Bram, a ministry of Worship Generation Church located in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please visit us at www.worshipgeneration.com. We believe in the power of the gospel. We believe you can transform every soul. We believe you're the Savior. Now let's join Pastor Joey as we study through the Bible. Let the nations be glad, all his saints rejoice, and let the people sing praise. So we pick it up in chapter 22, verse 1, and we read this. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, that is Jesus, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. You would be hard-pressed to find six verses in the Bible that are more dark and diabolical than these six verses. And meditating upon these, these verses in this passage throughout this week, preparing for tonight, just the words. I want to draw your attention to some of the words. Um, first of all, Passover in verse 1. That's a very important word because the Passover was the Jewish feast, which is a good thing. The Passover was a Jewish feast. It goes back to about 1500 B.C., so 1500 years before Christ came into the world. It was a key element of the covenant that God made with the nation of Israel in the Old Covenant. In the Old Testament. I know many of you know that, but I I just want to review this for a minute because if you recall, when they were slaves in Egypt, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, ethnically, they're a group of people, and God promised that He would deliver them. And so, after 400 years, according to what He promised previously, He sent Moses, a deliverer, and Moses came, and they had the 10 plagues, which most of you are familiar with again. But that last plague was the death of the firstborn of Israel, and it was their punishment for the oppression of the Jewish people as slaves. And God told the Jews the sign of their having faith in him that night of Passover that they had to find the lamb without blemish. It could be no faults with the lamb, no lame sacrifices. And they would, they would sacrifice the lamb, they put the blood of the lamb over the doorpost above on the sides of their home. So the blood was a sign of the faith and the covenant, just like Abel back in Genesis 4. The blood's always a sign of the covenant because Leviticus tells us that the life is in the blood. And when there's sin, the consequence is death. So for there to be forgiveness of sin, somebody has to die. There has to be a substitution. And for the nation of Israel, in this case, it was the Passover lamb. They were to eat the lamb like a meal, and there was to be no leftovers in the morning. And then the next day they'd be leaving Egypt free from their slavery and their bondage to Pharaoh, a type of Satan, and their bondage to Egypt and their slavery, a type of sin. And they would be delivered and brought out of the land through the miraculous departure through the parted Red Sea. But the Passover lamb was a key element of that. And as the Jewish people fulfilled it that night, and they did in fact leave Egypt and end up in the promised land, their own land of Israel, uh, 40 years later, the, the second generation, everyone under 20, plus Joshua and Caleb over 20, they came into the land and they were 
instructed by God under their covenant, which they received at Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, that there was three feasts they were to keep every year, that all the men in Israel would come before God in the capital, Jerusalem, and give an account for themselves. And it was this feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which includes the Passover lamb. It was Pentecost, and then it was the Feast of Tabernacles, which is six months later. So Passover and Unleavened Bread and Pentecost are close together. And, but the other one is a whole other season in the autumn. And they represent things of Christ and his kingdom and all that. But the focal point being that every year the Jews would go to Jerusalem and they would have a Passover lamb to remind them that God passed over their sins and delivered them from Egypt and that blood was shed for their forgiveness and coming into the land. And so that's the background to the Passover lamb. And it's, it's as Jewish as anything could be Jewish in the Old Testament. It was as important as any holiday could be important for the Jews and the Jewish men particularly as leaders of the family. But also the unleavened bread was a key element because the unleavened bread, unle- leaven represents sin in the Old Testament. Leaven's used about 80 times in the Old Testament and it's always in a negative. And it represents sin. Like a little leaven leavens the lump as we'd say. So a little bit of sin will rot everything and just a little bit of leaven makes your bread rise, correct? So it's the same principle. So when they were to leave Egypt, they had the Passover lamb and then the unleavened bread for a week because they were going in haste. Now, in the New Testament, we know John the Baptist said Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We know when Paul wrote the Corinthian church, he said, Christ, who is our Passover. And then he said, let us keep the feast with uh, purity and sanctification. We know that Peter, writing the early church, said, we've not been sanctified for our salvation with gold and silver and corruptible things, but with the incorruptible blood of Jesus Christ as of a lamb. So we understand that clearly that scriptures interpret scripture and the New Testament of the Apostles' Doctrine interprets the Old Testament that the Passover lamb was absolutely emphatically symbolic of Jesus Christ's coming, his death, burial, and resurrection, and what he would do, and the uh, feast of unleavened bread is representative of the sanctified life that we enter into in Christ. Because the, the scripture interprets scripture and it's there for us to see. So with that background, and we look about words that jump out to us in these first six verses, Passover is actually a good word because it's, it's, it's the law and it's a Jewish feast, but it represents Christ. It's Passover. And God does everything in perfect timing with perfect order according to his will. So It's the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Passover. It's a two-for-one. The two go together. Now, with that background, look at the the words we get now. The religious leaders, they should be pointing the people to God, but they've rejected the Son of God. They sought how they might kill him. We think about things that we might seek in life, and we seek uh, uh, an education. We seek uh, to build equity in our life to, to, to get a pay raise or to add skill to ourselves. We should certainly try and grow. So what we might seek, we might seek security. We might seek, seek significance, just different things. We might be seeking a, a, a wife or a husband. We might be seeking children through, through fertility methods or adoption. There's different things that we seek. I mean, the different things drive us. So let's just wrap our minds around this for a minute. These religious leaders are supposed to represent God and his word to the people. They are seeking how they can kill Jesus Christ, the Messiah. If you don't know law very well, but I'm sure most of you do, this would be premeditated murder. This is murder, first degree murder. Okay, when you plan and plot how to kill somebody and then you kill them, that's first degree murder. 
That's not second-degree murder, and it's certainly not manslaughter. It's premeditated. It's thought out. It's what Jesus warned about in the Sermon on the Mount, that if you don't make things right, if, you know, like he said, you've heard it, you shall not murder, but I tell you, if you hate your brother, you've already committed murder. In other words, if you hate someone and you don't work through that, through forgiveness and reconciliation and letting that go and, and saying peace and, and all those things that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, that generally precludes murder. Now, most murders are people killing people they know. I mean, over 80% of murders are people killing people they know. So it's, that would tell us in the human experience that we don't work through things, and when we don't forgive and let go, then, then it, just, it, just, it just it consumes us like a black hole, and it takes us to a dark place, and that's how it happens. These guys are spiritual leaders. They're supposed to be the religious leaders. They're, they're the chief priests. They're the ones that say they believe the Bible, the Pharisees, the Old Testament. And they're seeking how they could kill Jesus. Why? They feared the people. And the Bible tells us the fear of man is a snare. They feared the loss of their influence over the people. Insecurity. Faith and fear are opposites, aren't they? You know, they could have put their faith in Jesus like John the Baptist told them to, but instead they chose fear over what they would lose in their position as opposed to faith and repentance in receiving Christ. See, when Matthew, the tax collector, was called from the tax booth, he had a wealthy, a good job, he had good income, but when Jesus called them and he responded, he wasn't moved by fear, he was moved by faith, and he left everything and followed Jesus. His faith moved him. When Peter and Andrew and John and James, the other apostles, when they responded to the call of God and the, the call of discipleship through Jesus, they were not moved by fear. They were moved by faith. It says they, they, for, they left their nets, they left their boats. In the case of John and James, they left their father and the co-workers, and they went all in. Faith and fear are opposites like light and darkness. They just are just total opposites. And it's just so sad that these religious leaders, like Jesus said to them, you search the scriptures and in them you think you have life, but they are that which declare me to you. If they had just had faith, if they just believed Jesus at his word, looked at his miracles as confirmation of the prophecies of the Old Testament, they could have just been rejoicing, but instead they, they were moved by fear, the fear of men, the fear of economic security and the power and position that they had of losing it all, and they sought how they might kill God. They sought how they might kill the Son of God. Incredible. And then you see the next verse doesn't get much better. Satan entered Judas. This goes from bad to ugly, right? I talk about good, bad, and ugly. Good is everything God does. Bad is the human nature, and ugly is the devil. And so good is Passover, verse 1, because Jesus is the Passover. Bad is men. Ugly is Satan. It just, it's, a, it's a regression. It's a, it's a meltdown. It's an implosion. And this, Jesus would refer to this as their time, their dark hour later on. Of all the evil that Satan has accomplished in the realm of men and in this dimension, this event where he consumes Judas, one of the 12. He finds the weak link and he penetrates the circle of trust and fellowship of the 12. And he gets the betrayer, which was prophesied it would happen, but Judas is still accountable for what he allowed to happen in his own life. That The irony, though, of course, is Satan thought he was victorious through this event, but it was his very defeat, which just shows Satan doesn't know everything. He never has. He never will. He thinks he's God. 
he thinks he can still be God. He calls himself a God. Jesus referred to him as the God, the prince of the power of the air of this age. He's, he's a fallen angel, and he doesn't know it all. Our God, our Jesus Christ, who all of his promises are yes and amen, he knows everything. And all things work together for good according to his promises and purposes in general in his universe and in your life specifically and personally, my life through faith in him. We can never forget that. This move, this play by Satan, he actually thought this was the move where he would defeat God in the long war against God. But it was his very undoing, put in motion, his very uh, destruction. Because Jesus defeated Satan on the cross. Had Satan known that, he would have never entered Judas and moved these things in this direction. But Satan enters Judas, who is among the 12. The fellowship is broken. Satan went his way, and what a bad way he went, isn't it? He went his way, the way of a betrayer. It says that he conferred with the chief priest how he might betray them to him. He was considering, in verse 4, different ways. So if you imagine when you lay in bed and you think about different business plans or what you got to do the next day or your little checklist on your day planner, you got to call your mom, take care of your dad, do this, do that, the church, you know, whatever, that, you know, write this thank you card, text this person. Or, or, or then you think about like different plans and ideas. It, it says that how he might betray him, them, betray him to them. Judas was thinking of ideas how to betray people. Like you think about we want our, the legacy of our life to be life and hope and, and peace and encouragement and edification. And there are people, and the betrayers are like this, they think how they can betray you and how they can betray me, how they can betray Christ. They, they penetrate and they break the trust of people and they betray. And sometimes they plot how they do it. Some people, when they wreck a marriage, they plot how they're going to wreck that marriage, how they're going to leave their spouse and how to be in front of it. So the terms of divorce are in their best favor for them possible, and they plot when and how they're going to do it. Betrayers plot. It's what they do. They plot how they're going to steal the 50% of the business in a partnership before the other trusting partner figures out how they're going to do it and that it actually was done. That's what betrayers do. That's why they're betrayers. Enemies don't betray you. Friends and acquaintances betray you. There's a difference. A stranger doing you wrong is a stranger doing you wrong. Being betrayed is being having the trust you put in someone used against you in many cases to take from you at the very least, if not actually destroy you. So he plotted how he might betray Jesus to them. And look at them. They were glad and agreed to give him money. Can you imagine being glad to think that you're plotting to end someone's life, let alone the Son of God? When you're given over, you're given over. And it's, it's a scary thing. And verse 6 says that, that he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Judas promised. See, God's promises are yes and amen for good. <laughs> Judas's promise was to the people who wanted to kill Jesus. And he promised them. It's so twisted. He promised them that he'd find a way to betray Jesus in the absence of the multitude, because they feared the multitude, of course. We saw that in verse 2. So when you look at this opening segment that really puts in motion the last 24 hours we're moving toward there, and we think about the betrayal, it was prophesied in Psalm 41.9. In a Davidic psalm, he talks about um, that his friend would betray him. It was you, my brother, that betrayed me. Many of you have experienced betrayal. 
You've been betrayed by people you've trusted. Maybe you have been betrayed in a relationship by infidelity or something. Maybe you've been betrayed in a business situation, in a partnership. Maybe you've been betrayed at work where you uh, gave good ideas to your boss thinking it was your job and he stole those ideas and they fired you and they implemented those ideas when you were gone. That would be a form of betrayal because you trusted them. Maybe you've been betrayed in the family unit of uh, uh, assets and a living trust and things like that. A living trust won't betray you, but people who control things before the living trust kicks into effect, they can definitely betray you. I've heard many stories within this own congregation how many adult children uh, did evil things to other adult children from their parents' estate when they trusted them and they betrayed them and, and took large sums of money and then they asked forgiveness. That'd be a form of betrayal. Many of us have experienced betrayal under various circumstances. So let me just give you a quick word on betrayal. We must absolutely always forgive because the only alternative to being betrayed is to be bitter and to seek vengeance. That betrayal has to become a sacrifice to the Lord where you give that to the Lord. And you might need to give that to the Lord every single day. You know, I think of people where they've been left by a spouse and then there's family court and there's joint custody and you hand out the child every other weekend for Saturdays and Sundays and you get them on a holiday and this kind of stuff's going on. And you have to be copac- you have to be copacetic and polite and work through this. And, and like, see, some betrayals you can just move on from, but other betrayals, they might go on forever till, till you're done with time. We have to look at the person on a regular basis and see the person that betrayed you. You married them, you trusted them, they cheated on you, they left you, they married someone else, and now you have to share your kids 50% with this strange woman that's not the mother or this strange man that's not the father. But God is greater than those betrayals. We need to understand that, and we'll, we'll wrap that up with clarity tonight before we're done, but we, we have to forgive the betrayers. There's just no, there's no, there's, there's, uh, there's no other alternative. It just, there's no other alternative. So if you've been betrayed and you've wrestled, wrestled with forgiving that person or those people, I encourage you in Jesus' name right now to let that go. Acknowledge that by the Holy Spirit and make a commitment in this year to let God heal you of that and move on from it. Betrayal is a great evil, but to let it rule you only gives it victory where God's grace can triumph over it. One other thought, we certainly want to be the people that don't betray people. When we say, I got your back, we want to have someone's back. There's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And uh, the covering of love is a great covering. And we should never enjoy or rejoice in people's failures or destruction and those sorts of things. And loyalty is a great attribute in the kingdom of God. It's a great attribute in the human experience, let alone in the kingdom of God. Not blind loyalty because faithful are the wounds of a friend and deceitful are the kisses of an enemy, but loyalty goes a long way. Like, really, when we think about doing for others what we have them do for us, that's kind of a silly statement because if what you would do for others isn't good, why would you know, like, you, that becomes your own theology, actually, if you think that through. Uh, but if you have a biblical standard for doing for others what you'd have them do for you, then being loyal and being a true friend is. True friends are hard to find. As you go through life, you'll find there's very few people that stay consistently in your life that are true friends, and they're worth your loyalty. And we represent Christ, and 
Christ was faithful to the end. So we want to be careful that we're not the betrayer. We want to be loyal friends, but we also want to be forgiving of the betrayers. Now we read on in verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he, Jesus, sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. So they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then he shall say to the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room? Where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room. There make ready. So they went and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. A couple quick things before we move on to the next passage. It says, Then the day of unleavened bread came when the Passover must be killed. It was God's will that Christ would die on the Passover. The Passover begins at sundown. The Jewish days begin at sundown. So sunset starts the day at night, and then it goes all the way through to the next day at sunset. So Jesus literally was crucified on Passover. And that's not random. It's very deliberate. It shows he is the Passover. So as we move into the, uh, the, the Passover feast and the initiation of transfer from Passover to the Lord's Supper of Communion, it's all by divine design. And God's bigger than, than, he's bigger than all the issues of men and the betrayal and the rejoicing and glad and how we're plotting to betray. He's bigger than all that. He, like, it's, a, it's like a chessboard of people thinking they're moving, but God's over the whole thing. It's like when uh, The Passion came out, the movie The Passion of Jesus Christ, and it created a lot of controversy. Many of you remember that. And the biggest controversy over who was who put Jesus on the cross, right? It, Jesus submitted to the cross in perfect will to the Father for the redemption of humanity. Jesus said when they came to take him, he goes, could I not call down a legion of angels right now? Like, permit it to be so. When he said in the garden, if there's any other way, but... Nonetheless, not my will, but your will be done. God's, God's in control. He's always in control over the universe and over the hairs on our head. Always in control. That's why Jesus said, don't worry about it. He's got it. So it's the day. It's, see that capital D? So we've gone from uh, the feast drawing near to the actual day of, of the feast with Passover. I find it, I like this detail that it was Peter and John that were sent. Here's something to think about. Jesus sent Peter and John to go find that room, and he, he prepared the way before them. He said, they're like, well, where do we go? What do we do? He's like, hey, you go there. You'll see this guy at the water pitcher. Follow him. Say, hey. And he'll say, hey. And then you'll go like, hey. And then it's, hey. It's all there. It's, I go before you. When we studied the donkey, the, the cult of the donkey, we, we covered this in application that the Lord goes before us and he prepares the way. But this detail tells us who these two apostles were. And isn't it interesting? It's Peter and John. Because it's Peter and John on the day of Pentecost. It's Peter and John in the early church that healed the, the lame man in Acts 3. It's Peter and John before the Sanhedrin council. It's Peter and John going to Samaria. It's Peter and John, Peter and John, Peter and John. These guys were the two premier leaders of the apostles in the early church that they were constantly sent out into situations that were beyond them that would, could overwhelm them with no precedent of what to expect. And I just believe it's just part of God just showing them like, hey, I go before you. I've got this. In other words, everything's in increments with the Lord. When the Jews came to the promised land, he didn't give them all the land at once. He gave them little by little. He who's faithful with little, they'll get more. And it's like God teaches us things in lessons and seasons. We have to learn at each stage of life what he's teaching us in understanding his character and his grace and his call in our life 
And then he gives us more. And I just, I really like this detail that Peter and John were the two guys because everything was laid out before them. And these guys are going to change the world. And it's good for them to know, even on the night of betrayal, that everything was laid out before them. The night when Peter would deny the Lord and John would be the disciple whom Jesus loved, leaning on his chest, going like, hey, who's the betrayer, right? Okay, so these guys, Peter and John, they left the fishing business and here they are. How are we going to do this? We got a great plan. This is what we should do. We should book this room. He's like, hey, the guy with the water, follow him. It's not what we're doing. It's being in tune with what God's doing and, and being sensitive to discern it in our lives. And they found it just as he had said to them. Verse 13. Let me, let's look at that verse again. They went and found it just as he said to them. And I want to tell you emphatically in Jesus' name that wherever God's sending us in our day-to-day life, in our day-to-day affairs, he goes before us. You might think it's random dumb luck that you get in a conversation with someone at Trader Joe's or Vons or whatever. God, a man and a woman plan their ways, but the Lord directs our steps. And God is over those things. You've been listening to the Worship Generation Radio Ministry with Pastor Joey Baran. If you would like more information about the ministry of Worship Generation, visit us online at www.worshipgeneration.com, where you can listen to the podcast of today's entire message. Worship Generation is located at 10350 Ellis Avenue in Fountain Valley, California. Our service times are Saturday evenings at 6 p.m. and Tuesdays at 7 p.m. And also follow Pastor Joey on Instagram under the tag name at Joey Brand. Thanks for listening and God bless. Not ashamed of the gospel. Not ashamed, not ashamed of the one I love. Not ashamed, not ashamed.